before we do anything at all, before we even get started, we'll do a couple of announcements in a second. But before we do that, I want to pray for Brother Tim. I just heard when I got here that Brother Tim is home with a fever today. Um, and probably breaking his heart, but on top of that, he's not feeling well. So we have a number of praises. There are some good things that are happening too. And we got plenty of reason to praise God, but we want to lift him up today. Okay? And then also lift up uh, Brother Jason Wellington. He's been having some difficulties. They're doing a reset at work, and he's been working um, about 65 to 68 hours. Plus, he drives an hour and a half to and from work. So he works an hour and a half away. So that's five days, six days a week. So that's another what, 18 hours plus working 65 hours or whatever. I, I don't know what it comes up to, total 80 hours, something like that. It's, it's, okay. Thank you. Okay. It's getting out of control. So he's praying that he'll be able to just kind of make it through. He's got a couple more weeks he's got to get through. And then there's that. Um, and then he'll be worshiping with us. Okay, so first we'll pray. And we're going to lift up Brother Tim. And then, um, and then I'll just do a couple quick announcements. Okay? All right, let's pray together. As I pray, you're praying along with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We recognize that every day is a gift. Every day is meant to be a joy. Even those days, those days that are in hardship. I, I think about James chapter 1, how we consider it pure joy. When we face all manner of trials and tribulations. And there's a lot of that in the world today. A lot of trials, a lot of tribulations. We lift up Brother Tim this morning. It's, it's a tough time of the year because a lot of people have been sick. A lot of people have colds, and the colds have lasted a little bit. But thankfully, it's not been COVID. We're grateful for that. But we pray that that's, that's also true in his case. That you watch over him, that you protect him, that you heal him, that you lift him up. Help him know that we love him. I'm sure he's probably watching even now. And I just ask you, Lord, to bless him. Keep him and his family safe. And heal him up. Father, we pray for Jason this morning. The difficulties that he's been facing with work. Uh, we were talking the other day about okay, talking the other day about how he was climbing towers, going 120 foot up and doing it up and down and up and down 12 times in a day. In a 15 hour day that he's working. And so Lord, we just ask you to keep him safe. He's strong. He's worked hard to be strong. And we ask you, Lord, to make him strong spiritually, make him strong emotionally, make him strong psychologically. And there are lots of other troubles and difficulties. And we ask you to lift up your body and give us strength to represent you well in this day. And help us worship you now with our voices, with our hearts, with our minds. Bring us focus. Give us patience with one another. And help us to glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, a couple real quick announcements and we'll jump back into worship. Number one. Uh, you see a, a developing mound of candy up here. We are still taking uh, candy donations. They need to be individually wrapped and unopened candy donations. And we take those right up to and even at the Fall Fest, which is on the 31st. And opposite trick-or-treating, we're doing what's called a hall of a lot of fun. So it's right down the middle of the building. And if, we can, if all of our games and stuff won't fit there, then we can add... Uh, some of the little hallways are outside if the weather permits and that kind of thing. But we're going to do games. The kids come and they work their way down the hallway and they play games and we candy. And um, that's that's kind of like to replace trick-or-treating. It's a safe way of doing it. There are other things that people do. There are trunk or treats. Schools are doing certain things. Uh, there are other things people do. Um, but for our part, what we need to do is we need to design games, come ready to run games, donate candy, 
And then we've already elected as a church, decided as a church to put in some money to, for candy. And so we'll have plenty of candy to give the kids and some other treats and things for parents. And we'll have some stuff going on. It's going to be great. That's on Halloween, the 31st, the last Sunday of this month. So that's going to be an exciting day. All right. Then also on top of that, we have a lot more coming this upcoming month. I'll just, I'll direct you to your bulletin. I will tell you that most of the, most of the events, I think I have all the events on the church website. So they're there as well. But your bulletin has those dates listed in it. The biggest of which, and the thing I need you to pay attention to and to block out time for if you can, and that is we are having essentially a revival. It's not really a revival because, you know, that's up to God if he wants to revive people. But it's a time of focus. And so Sunday, the 7th of November, uh, Brother Jerry East from Mississippi will be here with us. And he will preach that Sunday morning instead of me. I'll be here. Uh, but, but he'll be preaching. And then Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night of that week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday that week, we will meet at 6.30, and we will meet like we do on Sunday morning. So we'll come in here, kids be in here for a couple songs, and then the kids will go out to a kid-appropriate lesson. On Tuesday night, it's going to be a special time where the kids will go out, and uh, Aaron will make sure that there are teachers for them, just like normal. But the ladies will meet in the cafeteria when the, right after the kids go out, or maybe the, one song more. Ladies, we'll meet in the cafeteria with Brother Jerry's wife, whose name I can't remember again. And I forgot to ask him what his wife's name was, and I'm sorry. But anyway, she will be here, and she's, she's a sweet woman, and she's going to teach out of the Word something specifically for women. So the kids will be in the kids' department, the women will be in the women's department, and the men will be in here, and uh, Brother Jerry will be with us, and it's going to be, that's going to be Tuesday night, okay? So it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So now you're going, right now you're going, like I said, i got to worry about dinner, right? Yep, you got to worry about dinner. If you're going to eat dinner, you got to work that out. Eat after, eat before, whatever. We are going to have some light refreshments of the healthy variety, okay? So we have some fruit and snacks and things like that that you can have when you come in. So if you're a normally like a 6 o'clock dinner eater, you can come and have the light refreshments, and then after we're done about 7.30, then you can do your dinner time with your family, okay? So that's all that's planned. And then Grand Prix is coming up. That, that's in your bulletin, too. Uh, and I don't need to get into the details of that right now. Second Sunday in November, All Family Fellowship. After church on Sunday, bring your potluck foods to church with you on Sunday. And afterwards, we're going to have together a meal. And we've got a little light. So we'll put some card games on tables, some discussion starters and stuff like that. And we'll come together as a church and spend a little time together. Okay? And pray that all that goes wonderfully and glorifies God. Okay? So that's some quick announcements. There's more in your bulletin. There's more going on. Christmas is right around the corner. So some neat stuff with that. And uh, but more, But... It's there so that you can say, that's in the bulletin. I'll look up those dates later. And right now say, I'm going to focus on God. Okay? So we're going to, we're going to praise God in song. All right? I'll turn it back over to you. <clears throat> All right. Good morning, New Heights. Good morning. We are looking kind of full, and I'm loving it, but we're also looking kind of sleepy. So I need everyone on their feet. I need all of our children-y type people up to the front. We're going to learn some motions. You like my words there? That's very scientific. <laughs> all right. Feel free to join us as we get going. Uh, adults, you can do motions too. This is not uh, bring out the children. Thank you. We're we're children. Come on, come on. Any children? Yeah, just stand up facing us. We're going to do them with you. <laughs> 
job, kids. <laughs> we have potions, okay? I love potions. So much that was fun i love doing the motions i don't know some people are motion reluctant but it gets my blood pumping and uh, i like to do it and i think I, what's funny is i'll be singing songs that don't have any motions and making motions to them so i, I like to do that so that's um they didn't do that specifically for me but i sure enjoyed it and i just asked you to uh, just focus your heart on god okay all right, so we come to that moment in time, we call it the inspirational moment time, in which we share how, what we've seen this week, what happened in the last seven days, what has God said to you, what have you seen from the Bible, what have you heard in a song, or where, you know, where is, um, where is God at work that you have seen, okay? And so, what do you got? Throw it out there. Where are the tone tape? We have a video. We have a video. So let's go right into it. So just be ready. Yeah. Are you just here? Why you just wait a second? Watch this whole movie. Just go back to the if it, if it goes back to the beginning, make sure you go to minute 25 because there's some, there's a fight going on. There's a past. Okay, pull it back up, minute 25. Alright, who's got, who up? watch your left, watch your eyes. Who else has something you like to say? Okay. Who else has something you like to say? And then we'll come back to that in a second. 
Nobody else does I do. Go. So on Sunday, a week from a week ago from today, I got a phone call that my brother passed away and me and my brother weren't like super super close. I mean I didn't even know he existed until I was seventeen. But um what the biggest thing right now that I've been dealing with is the fact that, you know, tomorrow's not promised. Right. And I think that was a huge huge thing, like huge wake up call for me and I've been trying not to let it bother me, but I, it has been. And uh part of it is the fact that we didn't spend more time together. But I guess the biggest thing that right now is you have to when you go to bed, you have to remember that you're not promised to wake up. Because that's what happened is he went to bed, never woke back up. He ended up dying in his sleep. But it's really hard to cope with it, I guess, but at the same time, it's, I guess, a wake-up call because it makes me realize that, you know, family is extremely important. And if you have to be, you have to make time for family. And it includes, obviously, like, church family and stuff. You have to make time to spend with the people you care about and who care about you. You can't let other things get in the way of your relationship with your family. That's a good word. Um, and an interesting time to mention that one of our core values as a church is family. It's one of the reasons why on Sunday evenings, for example, we suggest that families have family time. You spend time Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, whatever, together. And I would encourage you, as uh, being, I guess, who I am, that you make sure that the word is in that and that it's godly and so on. So you see the people in your life, brothers, sisters, your parents, anybody you can, one step, always try to work to lead them a little closer to God. And uh, the truth is, when somebody passes away, there's, there's literally always regret. I mean, it's a stage of grief. So that always happens. Um, but you want to you definitely want to learn the lesson that every day is valuable. Okay? Are we ready for the video? I'll tell you pause the pause. <laughs> okay, so you're ready to pause. Yeah, you're ready to pause. But I think this is exactly right. Shouldn't be here. Neither should you. Got a job to do. Is that what you're calling us? Killing all these people isn't going to bring your family back. We found something. A chance. Maybe. I'm sorry I couldn't give it to you, sir.
So let's come up here. Okay, so new heights and Facebook challenge. Uh, that's a challenge I'm thinking of. Like, first, I always think of. I always close my eyes because I'm, I'm gonna let God speak. You know, I look at everybody. Don't really matter. God's speaking anyways. But uh, so my first question I always say is, what inspires you? Maybe John Wayne was going to come up here. Maybe it's an old cowboy movie. Maybe it's an old soldier movie. Maybe it's a sports quote. Like, where I'm like, that moment that it's being spoken as if someone's speaking directly to me. And so that's the first thing I ask. What is God speaking to you? So, born again believers here on Facebook, you have the greatest hope you can ever do. Is like, what is God telling you? And to share that with others. So, the thing I love about this scene, this is Avengers Endgame. And I don't know if anybody heard of this movie. I'm not telling you to watch it, but man, it's awesome. The story is the very, I'm not going to tell the whole movie, they fail in the last movie. They literally lose. A million of people are wiped out, families, friends, like half of half. And they lose absolute all hope. And even the, the, the Avengers, one, he turned into like a literally like a, a mercenary going around like taking out vengeance on anybody that is like literally hurt someone or like that's his plan. One gets really really fat and depressed. <laughs> the other one um like they 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 continue on but they don't know they can have. But in this movie, there's a moment where there's hope. There's a moment where they can think that they could go back and fix everything. The first thing is this is a movie. You can't fix anything. You can't go back and fix it. The funny thing about this movie is that, and I love about this, I want to keep this short, is that the one thing that God was telling me first is that the pain never goes away. The experiences that you felt that are soul-crushing experiences, times that I've felt, and many have felt in their lives, and my family, the pain that I've heard from others, that pain never goes away. Those memories never go away. Those consequences, those never go away. But hope never quits. Hope never fails. And in that moment, he has a mask on, and he is absolutely no way going to be who he's supposed to be. And the one thing that God was telling me to tell you guys is just, if this isn't speaking, just be all you're supposed to be in Christ, and you're great. Same thing, Facebook, just be all you can be in Christ. I'll get to the point here in a second. But hope never fails. And she's waiting, even watching him do all that crazy stuff. You don't know what he did. He went like just on a crazy spree. And she's waiting. He knows that she's there because he's a mercenary. He can sense her. And as soon as he does that deed he did, she goes up to him and he pulls his mask off. Because he doesn't, he's not, he can't be, he can't change, he can't stop doing what he's doing because hope's not coming his way. And so when she comes and she says, we have a chance. We have a chance to get back everything that was taken away. We have hope. And he goes, don't. Don't give me hope. And that's the hard part. Is you have to understand, people's lives are wounded and broken. And the hope that we have, they can't have that hope if they don't turn to Him. Because that hope is what they're doing right now. They are killing with their swords. They are killing with their words. And this could be Christians too. They are killing with their feelings, their problems, their situations. Not following God in the hope that they have. And they have no control over themselves. Those are lost. You have no control of yourselves. I'm not making fun of you. Turn your heart to Jesus. Turn over to God. And He will bring control back up. He'll change you. God is not a lifestyle. God is a life changer completely. And so what happened is, in that moment, he comes back to who he is. And she reaches out to him. 
and says, I'm sorry to bring this to you a long time ago. And so church, we have to make an apology for one thing. We should have been bringing it anyways, but regardless, we still have hope and we still need to bring it to others. Three people so far in my life are boasting the cross. They ain't nothing that Tony Tate did. Tony Tate loves his little Cheetos and watching movies and doing nothing. That's Tony Tate. I don't need Cheetos anymore, but I can get them again. I like to be cheesy. I'm a corny kid. That's who I am. I'll get cheesy again. I'll get me some Cheetos. That's who I am. But Tony Tate went out there and put his feelings on the line through Christ and his life on the line and his emotions on the line and his uncomfortable circumstances and the pain that I've been through and the hurt and all the things I dealt with, I put it on the line. I denied myself who I am and Christ brought life into me and three people were able to plead their case to Jesus, not pleading it to an imperfect person, but pleading it to the hope they could find in Jesus. So here's the challenge, New Heights. Here's the challenge, Facebook. Is that you may not know this, and you gotta try to refute me in the scriptures. But my challenge is, is that you could plead your case with Jesus. You could plead. That means everything you've been through—the hurt, the pain, the struggle—it's the hope that brought him back. It wasn't that moment that she reached out to him. It was the moment that there could be a reach. It was the moment that there was hope—the real hope. The hope that they have, and I'm not making fun of it. I don't care if it's marriage, success, all that. But it's the hope that keeps them, and this is what I'm going to close on. It's the hope that keeps them just going. Our hope is that we move forward and there's nothing they can do. They can't stop us. We don't quit. We press on because our hope cannot be taken from us. The hope of the Lord Jesus is what we have. Born again believers, brothers and sisters, my challenge to you is that we should plead that case with others. As I don't care if you're a coach, I don't care if you're a dad, I don't care if you're a mom, let them know at least there is hope. And then they can plead the case. Because the first thing is, I pleaded my case with them, and then they got to plead their case with them. And that was a moment where God is involved, and their lives will never be the same. And why do I say that? Because I did something that I could not do. I think the can-do is not what God cares about at all. I mean, it's awesome. God's giving you great gifts. God's giving you giving the glory. You reach out and do a bunch of stuff. But it's what you can't do is where God gets involved. Think about it. Gideon, 300 against 3 million. Might have been a million. Okay? Think about it. 3,000 people were saved in a big city that no one would even re- recognize that as a big number. It's not about the numbers game. It's about what you can't do is what God says you can do. So that's all it's about. If you don't get nothing from this, just be all you can be in Christ. I didn't come here to like try and tell someone what to do, but we have that hope. And if you need to take that mask off and that sword again and let God do a work in your hurting, soul-crushing heart, because my soul was crushed because of the people that walked on me and left me for dead. But God came to me just like she did and said the same thing. I'm sorry to come to you sooner. She was always coming. Christ was always there. God was in the worst of all times because the one hope that we have is that he died and rose again from that cross. We don't have any other hope. It's the hope that we will have for the rest of now and eternity. Challenge you, Facebook. Challenge you, New Heights. And if you do it already, give me a thumbs up so I can thank God and pray to watch. If just every born-again believer just reached out to one person and gave their life to everything they had, if they just did that one thing, we would see life change, not lifestyle. 
Alright, that's the praise team to lead us as we worship with the tithes and offerings. I'm going to pray for us briefly and we're moving forward. Let's go. Father in heaven, we praise you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the tithes and offerings. We ask you to multiply these music for the kingdom of fans. We thank you for these moments of inspiration. We thank you for that message that there is hope. We ask you, Lord, to help us live it out as we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs>
Enjoy the notes. So just real quick, I wanted to share with you what was on my heart as I began to write this sermon so that you have it in the context that I was looking at it, okay? So I came back from out of town after I went to Tennessee, and I, we had gone to church down there, and then, and then afterwards watched the uh, New Heights service, um, minus about the first half an hour, because that's when church ended. And uh, I felt like I learned some things while I was there, but it kind of showed me that they're, they're a, they were a very different kind of church than we are. And so then I thought about the kind of church that we are, and since then I've been praying about it and thinking about the kind of church that we are, and I was thinking about how we set, set out to plant a certain kind of church that we thought was the godly kind, the kind that God wanted us to plant uh, many years ago now. And um, five years ago we constituted, and we attempted to constitute as that kind of church. And so I talked to Brother Tony about it. I prayed about it. I thought, can I do a sermon series on the kind of church that we are and the kind of church that we're supposed to be and the difference kind of between the two? And that was the context of the sermon that you're about to, to kind of partake in today. Now, that being said, that context of that sermon, that being said, this is more about what any church should be or what any church might want to be if they are true followers of Christ, Okay. All right, so here we go. Grab your Bibles if you do, if you would. If you're following along in your Bibles, that's great. If not, I'm going to read the text, so it's okay. And it's Matthew chapter 5. Amen. Amen. This is God's Word, Matthew chapter 5. Now, you may know already that this is part of what Jesus, what was called of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? So the Sermon on the Mount was a public speech that Jesus gave. He stood up on the side of a hill or a mount, a mountain. It's kind of like a precipice, rocky precipice, and he spoke to them as they stood in the valley, and it was like a big natural amphitheater, and so his voice could carry to the thousands of people that were gathered. And then Matthew records, and he's not the only one, Luke has it as well, but Matthew records this sermon then, and it's traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we're not going to preach the Sermon on the Mount, we're not going to preach the sermon that he preached, but we're going to drill down on beginning in verse 13. So I'm going to read it, I'm going to explain it briefly as we go through it, and then I'm going to talk about it in the context of what a church or what God's people as the church should be like. Okay, so that's what we're kind of trying to do today. So Matthew 5, 13 says, you are the salt of the earth. So this classic verse, people from Christian people from way back probably memorize, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I want to say to you that I struggled with that verse in my young Christian walk. Because initially on the surface of the verse, it seems like it's saying, if you don't live for Jesus the way you're supposed to live for Jesus, you're basically worthless and you're just going to be thrown out, Right? Except biblically, we know Jesus doesn't throw people out. If you believe and trust in God, he's not going to throw you out, even if you're a screw-up and a half, right? So I always struggled with that. And then I taught a preschool lesson, actually. Um, I think it was on a Tuesday night, pretty sure, um, about three years ago, or something like that. Um, Ty, how old are you now? Nine. Nine. So five years ago, because Ty was... uh, four or five years ago, because Ty was four or five, and he was uh, in the class at that time. And we 
we studied this verse and we talked about how being salty means being different. It means being what God wants you to be and standing out and, and changing the world around you, basically. And then as I prayed about it, the Lord let me talk about it. So, But what happens when you don't act like that? So if you're salt and you aren't salty, then what happens? Well, what happens is people no longer recognize you as the Christian that you are. So you profess to be a Christian, but now you're not acting like a Christian. So people are thrown back. If they knew you as a Christian, they're now thrown back and like, is this person what they said they were or not? And that's true even if the person's not a Christian. So if you act like somebody that you're not, or you talk like being somebody you're not, and then you act completely differently later because you're back to who you were, or because you're different now than who you were, or whatever, people are not going to recognize you. And that's what he's talking about. And so people are going to say, you profess to be a Christian, you were living like a Christian, but now you're not? I don't understand. So then what do they do with your testimony? What do they do with the fact that you said Jesus had changed you? And really what they do is they throw it out. They think it's worthless, right? That's what Jesus is actually talking about. So how do you become salty again? Well, Jesus is talking about turning back to him. How did you get salty in the first place? How did you become a Christian? You turned to Jesus. The only way that you can do it is to turn back to Jesus again, right? And Jesus can do it. Jesus could take unsalty salt and make it salty. He could take dirt and make it salt, right? He has that kind of power. So if you don't, if you feel like you've walked away from the Lord or you've fallen away from the Lord, whether it was by your own intention or not, he's saying the only way to get back is through me. All right. Now we're going to go on. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So this verse has been used often throughout the history of America. America, as a Christian nation, considered itself to be a city on a hill. That all the world would look to us in the early days after the revolution and even during and before that even, they would look to us as an example of what greatness is in a country. Freedom, democracy, greatness, right? Now that's not really what's meant, right? He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about followers of Jesus are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In other words, if God puts you up there, there's nothing you can do to hide it, really. God will get his glory. 15. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure. In other words, you shouldn't light a lamp and put it under a basket so it's just burning uselessly. But rather put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. So you set it up somewhere where it's going to shine everywhere and people can see. And so if we are that light, that's what God wants to do with us. He wants to set us up so that people can see. And what we're supposed to do then is in 16. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And this verse both is a command, and at the same time it's an explanation of how to carry out that command. I'll say it, so follow it with me for a second. Let your light shine. Remember this light that is the good that we do because we're followers of Jesus, right? So let your light shine in such a way, so now this is how we do that. How do you let your light shine? What's that supposed to look like? that they may see your good works, the good things that you do, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that word glorify means like to shine a light on something. So that they will say, yeah, okay, that's obviously God at work. So the idea is to live in such a way doing good things so that God will be seen, so that God will be known, so that God, it will be known that God is working in you. Verse 17, we're over halfway there. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, it's an interesting turn. This is written just the way Jesus initially spoke it. Best understanding of Matthew, right? Matthew was saying, this is how Jesus spoke. So why does Jesus jump right from 
glorify your Father in heaven to do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Because the understanding that we're meant to have is that the, the way to work, do good works so that people will glorify God is to do what God tells you to do. To follow the rules, quote-unquote, that God set forth. Now, the Bible is not rules, we understand. It's a model for how to live. But it doesn't say, do this, don't do that. That's not the point. You need to understand it well enough that, that you're living it, and then you won't do that. Okay, that's the basic idea. It's the idea, I'm not going to do these things that God tells me not to do. Not because God tells me not to do them, but because I've understood that's not what's good for me. That's not what God wants for me. So he's saying, well, all the people around me are accusing me of breaking God's law, of ruining what they have taught all these years. What I'm here to show you is I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to make it everything that it was meant to be. I'm going to live it out before you. And then you know, and I know how Jesus lived it out. He went all the way to the cross and died for sins. Okay, 18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, everything that God has written, everything that God has ordained will come to pass. Nothing is going to disappear from what God has given us. All the way to the end until heaven and earth pass away, which is going to happen in a new heaven and earth replace. Okay, 19. Whoever then annuls, and that's a word we don't hardly use anymore. It's, it's a common English word, but we don't use it. We, might, we, might, we use it for to annul a divorce, or to annul a, a marriage. I'm sorry, to annul a marriage. So we put away a marriage. So you understand the meaning based on that. However then, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, and make these commandments not fruitful, make these commandments not useful, make it mean something it doesn't mean, and so teaches others. So you do that. You say, well, I don't really have to do what God says there. And then you teach others. They don't really have to do what God says there. He says, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Notice that it's, you're going to still be in the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about people who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and then take a certain part of what the Bible teaches us and let it go. Do away with it. Alter it. Change it. They believe in Jesus, but somewhere along the road, they get into not following some certain aspects of the commands that he has given them. Okay, So they're still going to heaven, but they're going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Then it says, but whoever keeps and teaches them, so in other words, if you follow the teachings that Jesus has given us and teach them to others, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it's just a decision you've got to make. Do you want to follow what God has given us to do and be called great in the kingdom of heaven and also teach it to others and then be called great? Or do you want to kind of uh, get wishy-washy a little bit? We're not going to follow exactly what he said to do. We're going to, we're going to believe in him, but we're not going to really do what he said. And then you'll go to heaven, but be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Not my words, so don't get mad at me. That's what Jesus said. Okay, last verse for today. I'll quote a couple, um, and we'll go and read one passage uh, as an example in the in the text, but we're almost done with this part. Verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now remember that trails right on what he just said. Okay, so he just said, you believing in me, my followers will go to heaven. But I say to you that unless your righteousness, unless you have righteousness that is much more than the scribes and the Pharisees, and let's be sure about who we know these people are. The scribes are the people who copied over the word. So they had whole books of the Bible memorized. They literally memorized by characters, like by letters and, and, and everything. 
Okay, They would count to the middle character of the book. They knew which one that was. They would count to one quarter. They would count to three quarters. They literally, because remember in Hebrew, all the words, and in um, Hebrew was the only thing they had, because they didn't have the New Testament yet. All the words string together. So they would count to the very middle of the character and say, oh, that's not the right middle character. This one's junk. And they would bury it. Or they would check every last mark. They knew it like nobody knew it. Okay? And they would follow it mostly. Right? So they had holy days. They followed the feasts and the Sabbaths and the sacrifices and those kinds of things. And then the Pharisees, they also knew it. They memorized whole books of the Bible. Not as much as the scribes because they weren't copying them over all the time. But they memorized the entire book of Genesis, for example. You know what that would be like? We're like, we memorized the Ten Commandments. Woo! Yay! Us! And then they memorized the entire book of Genesis, word for word, character for character, beginning to end before they could ever be considered a Pharisee. And then they would travel throughout the land and preach all of that everywhere they went. And they fast two days a week. Two days a week, they literally would not eat or drink anything, just be in prayer. And Jesus says that unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. Which is a bookend to, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? See, he's encapsulating this passage of scripture to tell us this is Christianity. This is following Christ. This is what this is going to be like. This is the journey to heaven. This is what you need to be doing. This is who you need to be. And you're going to get from point A to point B. And there's no other way from there to there. Through me. Now this is what that looks like. Through me. Okay? Alright, so we finished the text. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And I do want to give you this uh, little side note. They would have heard Proverbs 4.18 when Jesus said that, right? So the scribes and Pharisees who were there had the book of Proverbs mostly memorized. They would have heard Proverbs 4.18, which says, But the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. And in that verse, you hear that there is light, but it's coming light, Right? And that, again, is what Christianity is supposed to be like. I get it. We don't get it all right. We don't do everything we're supposed to do. We don't even know every command of Jesus, right? But we say, well, but if we don't follow a command of Jesus and we teach others to to not follow that command of Jesus, then we're considered least in the kingdom of heaven, right? So if you don't know all the commands of Jesus, then first thing you got to do, right, learn all the commands of Jesus. No, because that's drifting into legalism. You will learn many commands of Jesus over your lifetime, and when you learn them, you need to do better and better at following them. It is progressive revelation. As the dawn comes up and before the sun is above the horizon, the sky starts to get bright. Our righteousness is like that. We will get more and more like Jesus as we go. But even that, we will never arrive at a point where we are righteous like Jesus. Because why? Because the righteousness comes through Jesus, by Jesus. He gives it to those who love him and who are at work in him. So there's three things I want you to see in this text, okay? The first one is, I, I coined this phrase, I said, in such a way. In such a way. And so already you know where I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking at that where it says, do, uh, so let your light bless you. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I submit to you that in such a way, that little phrase, in such a way, tells us what we kind of need to know about being the church. So we do good things. We do. We feed people. We serve people. We clean. We work. Uh, we mow. We fix. We climb. Uh, we cook. 
we we run games, we uh, we do missions several uh, five, six, eight times a year, whatever. We do lots of good things. But I submit to you that that phrase in such a way will either qualify or disqualify everything we do as a church. Okay? And what then is the in such a way? Well, number one, it is in such a way as to be seen. So Sherry and I like to play frisbee golf. And we went out last night to Ottawa Park to play. Uh, it was a little chilly and we wanted to go somewhere where the wind would be kind of broken and, and we could stop quickly and get back to our car if it started raining or whatever. And so we went out there to play frisbee golf. And we get up to tee off and we're looking down there trying to figure out and it's like 400 yards or feet or whatever those are. I think it's 400 yards, feet, feet, 400 feet away is the goal. We're looking, we're going, where is the goal? I can't, can't see it. And we're stepping sideways to look around the trees and everything. And then the goal was plainly in view. But the problem is those goals, they're made of chains. And so a certain amount of light and a certain amount of what's around it can pass right through, right? And so we're looking down and then finally, oh, it's right there, I see it. And it was almost 100%, it wasn't invisible, but it was almost 100% invisible because the trees behind it were essentially the same color and it was so camouflaged, so easy not to see it because it wasn't standing out, because there was no contrast between it and its surrounding. That is the opposite of what we're being called to. Your good works are called to be seen. Now, I understand we have a problem with this because the world, humble in the world is when you do something good, you don't say a word. You don't let anybody know that you did. You don't go around, you know, breaking your arm, patting yourself on the back. That's conceited. It's disrespectful to the people around you. So yeah, oh, Sally needed five bucks and I gave it to her. You walk in the office. I gave her the five bucks. I did that. That was me. No, we don't do that. The world, you don't do that. It's not humble. Right, But this is in such a way that our works would be seen. They are supposed to be seen. Now, there are lots of people in the world that do good things. Let's be realistic. I have a friend who, um, when we were traveling back and forth to Michigan all the time, he let us stay. He set up a guest room in his house and let us stay in his house every Saturday night so we could go to Sunday school and church and the choir and Sunday night service and Awan and all the things we did at our church. We were living 126 miles away. We'd come down here and he would let us stay in his house. He was an atheist. He was a self-professed atheist, did not believe in God, and yet he stepped out and he always made sure there was food that we liked in the fridge and he bought this big, beautiful comforter of the kind they have in the really like four-star hotels and everything to put on the bed. Now, the church didn't offer us a place to stay, but my atheist friend offered us a place to stay. The world does lots of good things. And to this day, 20 plus years later, I'm going, man, that's pretty cool that he did that. Now, since then, he's transitioned from being an agnostic to now being a Christian. But the, what I'm trying to say, or essentially a Christian, he professes Christ. And so what I'm saying is, just doing good, it's not going to get it done. It's not going to be a contrast. You have to do good out of the love of your heart, out of a, a certain motivation. You have to bring into it the fact that you're different, that you're doing something different than you otherwise would do. So you're going to do it in just such a way as to be seen, picked out in contrast to the world. That means you may have to give more than anyone else would give. You say, well, that's not right. That's not fair. That I should have to give more money, more time, more blood, sweat, and tears than my neighbor does, who's an atheist in order for the world to see that I'm good? Of course it's not fair. But it's just. It's exactly right. Because who are you representing? You're representing God. Do you have limited resources? 
Do you have limited resources to give? Do you have limited time? No, because the God who is the author of the universe, who gives all things, He is the one backing it up. When you commit to do something, God is the one backing it up, not you. Now, if you commit to do something that's not in the Lord, then that's a problem. But if you literally have the unlimited resources of the kingdom and of God, why are you holding back? Why are you reserving yourself? Why are you not taking greater, grander risks than the world? Which would cause you to be picked out in contrast. Secondly, then, you need to be identified as connected to God. And this is probably my greatest problem with the way the church behaves in the world. And sometimes it's our church, and I don't judge people, and I don't judge churches. But the church needs to put God in everything they do. When you do something good, number one, if God don't want you to do it, don't do it. But if God does want you to do it, then don't do it without giving him credit. Number two, if you have money, and it's going to cost you money, and you give money to take care of that person, pay their rent, do utility, give food, whatever, fix their car, buy them a gift, a little love gift, send them a card, a postcard, whatever. If any of that, if you're going to spend your money, if you got that money from God, then don't do that act of love without giving God the credit. Right? If somebody needed a meal prepared in the church, and I was going to prepare that meal for them, like I say, they've been in the hospital, I think they need a meal, and I was going to prepare that meal for them, but for whatever reason, I was in a position where I couldn't provide the food and I needed help to do it. And I come to the church, I come to Brother Tony, our deacon, and I say, can you, can you pay for the food so we can provide this meal for this? We'll cook it, but we can't get it done because we don't have the money to buy the food right now. And he said, yeah, we'll take care of it. Or one of you said, yeah, we'll take care of it. We'll pay for the food. Then when I go to deliver that food, I'm not going to take full credit for that food. And if I do, I'm in the wrong. I say, I'll say, I, you know, I, I wanted to love on you. And they'll be like, oh, thank you for providing dinner for us. Well, the truth is, you know, I cooked it, but I couldn't afford to pay for it. And so the church or so-and-so, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. And if you got your finance, if you got your strength, if you got your talent, if you got your ability, if you got your problem solving, whatever, you got that from the Lord, then give credit to the Lord. This is what the church does. We don't want to upset or offend or bother people. So we do good and we do, and we do. And if they ask us and they say, well, why did you do this good? Then we'll tell them why. But if they don't ask us, we don't tell them. Just give God the credit. Everything you do should be seen in contrast to the world, which means you have, you probably have to go to the nth degree. Years ago, a, a, a dear friend of mine was planting a church on Manhattan Island. I'm sorry, Long Island, on Long Island in New York. And there was a bunch of churches there, and they were planting this little church, and they had like seven people in their little church was meeting in their house. And the, uh, one of the people coming to their church, their brother, who wasn't coming to their church, uh, suffered a loss and was going to have trouble paying their rent. So the church got together, and the church said, so-and-so is going to have trouble paying their rent. And they said, well, we understand they're going to get help from such and such a church and it was like a big church like a Catholic church or a Lutheran church or something and they're like they're going to get help from that church so we don't really have to do anything and they prayed about it and God said no you need to do it because you don't know what's going to happen so that church took up a love offering they all came together and they gathered $700 seven people in the room representing like five families and they all said you know this is what God wants to do and they all gave money and it was like 700 bucks so they gave this man who was the woman's brother $700 to solve his problem seven people meeting in this little church to give $700 after the fact, about a month later, the brother called and said, I just want you to know, you know, it really touched my heart. It really was a big deal to me. I'm so grateful. And I'd like to come to your church. And he came and he wound up getting saved. Now, they didn't do it so he would get saved and you shouldn't. 
right? They did it so that he would glorify God. And that's what the Bible tells us we have to do, okay? After the fact, he, my friend who was playing the church found out that that big church, the big church that was going to help him, gave him $50. And if they'd have said, we're not going to take care of it, we're going to let them take care of it, that's what they would have got, $50. But because they, they listened to God and did what they did, they got $700. Now, I know we can't always give $700, and you may be in a situation where your money's tight, you may still be recovering from what the, who you were before you got saved, or still trying to figure it out, you haven't begun to tithe, you don't understand the concepts. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, if the Lord leads... Take the risk. Go the extra mile. Extend yourself and let God, and let's tap into God's banks instead of trying to tap into our banks and he will always provide. And then you will be identified as you say, but it wasn't me. It was God. I couldn't even have done it because it really stretched me to do it, but God provided. Do it in such a way. It's big risk. It costs. But if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's how you do it, in such a way so that God can get the glory. The next thing I want you to see in there um, is that the law was meant to persist. The instructions, the directions, the corrections, the growth, the learning, all that God has given us was meant to persist. And it doesn't get added to now, it's closed. We've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is, it is what God has given us. But it was meant to persist. And Jesus says it very clearly. If you annul a teaching and teach someone else the same thing, if you find something in your Bible that you're supposed to do and you don't do it, and then by your example, somebody else feels empowered to not do it. That's all it takes. So you're a mother or a father or an older sibling. So you're a friend or a brother or sister and you're trying to live for Jesus, you believe in God, and then you know that you're supposed to, let's let's take the easy one, right? You know that you're supposed to share the gospel and talk to people about Jesus. And you don't do it. And so then they don't do it. Everybody's being watched. Everybody's an example. And because of that, then, if you know what you're supposed to do, and you say, well, I'm not going to do it. It's just not me. I wasn't built that way. That's not the thing I'm supposed to do or whatever. I'm not going to do it. And then you teach others to do the same, either by your example or by telling them, it's okay, don't worry about it. If God really wanted you to do it, he'd make it happen or whatever. If you do that, you will be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. Not my words, Jesus' words. What does that exactly look like? I don't know. Never been there. I sure want to go there. I'd rather be the least in the kingdom of heaven than not there. right? But the bottom line is, I'd rather be doing what God wants me to do. It's simply put what you're supposed to be. Alternatively, if you keep the law, and as you read your Bible, and you say, oh, it says I'm supposed to be this. Okay, Whew, I'm going to try to be that. How simple is that? It's like an instruction book. You know, this is how you put it together. Okay, well, that's how I'm going to put it together then. And you do that. And then you teach your children, you teach your siblings, you teach your friends, you teach your coworkers, other students in your school, that that's the way God wants it to be done. Very simple. I figured this out. This is how I do this. Right? and you teach them that, then according to Jesus, you'll be considered the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I was driving in the van with Ariana on the way over to Warren, Ohio, which I went to yesterday morning to promote the Life Station and talk about the ministry here and so on and what we do. Um, and as we're driving in the van, she says, Daddy, i got to ask you a question. I'm saying, I'm say, sure. She does this fairly frequently. I'm ready for whatever she asks. And plus, she's already told me I have all the answers, so I feel very confident. Um, yeah. And so she says to me, uh, how is it that you are brave enough 
to say God bless you and have a nice day to everyone that you talk to. When you open the door, the, uh, go to gas stations, the restaurants, you say God bless you and have a nice day to everyone. So how is it you are brave enough to do that? She said, how do you know you're not going to run into somebody who kills Christians or at least gets really mad or hates you for saying that? And basically what she was revealing her heart, that she was afraid to say, God bless you and have a nice day to people because she's afraid that they'll get mad at her. Ever have that problem? You know what that is? That's an evil spirit. That's an evil spirit telling you that you can't do what it is you were created to do, which is bless people. And so I said to her, I said, well, honey, you know, the good news is the nation that we live in, you're probably not going to have to worry about that. No, nobody around here is much killing Christians because they might get somebody to get mad. And I, and I did tell her, I said, about two or three times in the last roughly 20 years of me doing that, I've had somebody get mad at me and say something back that wasn't nice. Typically, what they'll do is if I say, God bless you and have a nice day, and they for sure don't want to say, God bless you, they'll say, you just have a nice day, inferring to me that they don't want anything to do with God or anything to do, you know, like that. And uh, that's, that's the worst I usually get. But quite often, even people I think who are probably atheists will say, oh, you too, meaning God bless you and have a nice day too, even though they don't believe in God. And so I told her, I said, well, I've been blessed by a lot of people who don't even believe in God because they say, oh, you too, right? Most people are not even listening to what you say if they don't believe in God. But if they, if they do believe in God and you don't say God bless you, then why would they think you do? Why are you not saying God bless you to people? Oh, because it offends. The gospel is offensive. Jesus is offensive. They literally crucified him. I think it's time we stop worrying about what people think and just be the people that we're supposed to be. Keep the commands of Jesus and teach them to anyone who will listen or anyone who is watching you and you will do well. You will be considered great in the kingdom of God. Okay. Then he says, a greater righteousness than the Pharisees and the scribes will be required of us. Okay, so we've got three points, basically. Number one was, in such a way. Number two was, the law was meant to persist. And the third one is, a greater righteousness is required. And so we know that this is the righteousness of God that he's talking about. And it is a gift that he was willing to provide, but not everybody can have it. Not everybody will take it. If you are given a gift and you don't take it, you really don't have it, right? I've had a couple of times where I tried to give somebody a gift and they were mad at me and they're like, slap the gift out of my hand onto the floor. Guaranteed, they didn't have it. I've given people gifts and they put them in their closet and they never used them. They didn't have that gift. They had it if they ever wanted it, so they had the possibility of accepting the gift, but they never accepted the gift. Jesus is talking about a gift that you can have. There's a beautiful picture of this. We're going to go there and read it briefly. And this is the last text. Let me double check myself. This is the last one we will actually go and read, I think. If we do read another one, it will be very short. So we're going to go to Luke 18. Okay, In Luke 18, Jesus tells a story. And the story begins in verse 9. Jesus is, first it says, And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Okay, So this is the people he's telling the story to. The people who go, yeah, I'm good, but you're not good. You know, I, I see what you're doing there, and you're, you're a worthless per- piece of dirt because of what you're doing there. I'm good. I'm doing what God wants me to do, but I see you're not. Okay? And that's the people he's talking to, and he says this. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. Remember who I told you the Pharisees were. Very holy, very righteous, preachers, fasting, memorizing, right? The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. 
I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get, but the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So the tax gatherer, the, the bad guy, the guy that everybody would think was unrighteous, not the good guy, says, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And people there are going, yeah, that's probably the way it should be because he's a piece of dirt and the other guy's all holy and stuff. And then Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The guy who beat his breast appealed to God and said, be merciful to me, a sinner. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Do you want God to lift you up? Then you got to stop doing it. That's the bottom line. As long as you're lifting you up and you're using other people to lift you up and your money is lifting you up and your TV is lifting you up and inspirational quotes online that didn't come from scripture, side note, are lifting you up and your kids are lifting you up. As long as you're looking to someone or something other than God to lift you up, God is by no means obligated to do so. But if you will stop and say, God, I'm not going to get lifted up by any other means other than you. I realize it's all going to fall on me. I depend on them. They run away. I depend on it. It's not there. I depend on me and I fail. But if I trust in you, I believe, God, that you are faithful and I will trust in you alone. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and you will receive the righteousness that God has actually offered you. The forgiveness of your sins. The ability to cleanse you from the effects of unrighteousness. That's what you need. And he says, and a greater righteousness than those who stand and say, oh yeah, they're doing that. I'm glad I'm not an adulterer. I'm glad I tithe all the time. I'm glad I do all these things all the time because I don't want to be like them because I want to come before you and feel like I'm going to be okay. If that's your position, you need to repent and turn to God on your knees and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because somebody's going to do it. Somebody's going to say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if God contrasts that person who says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, with that person who says, I thank God I'm not like them, one of them's going and one of them ain't. And somebody's going to do it. And so it better be us. We need to say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and trust in God's provided righteousness alone. Be aware when you do that of this fact. I have a t-shirt that says, not perfect, just forgiven. God does not suddenly, as soon as you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, make you perfect. You're still going to make mistakes. That righteousness comes because you are forgiven, not because you're perfect and don't make any mistakes anymore. This is what happens. People who would never judge anybody in contempt, people who would never think bad about anybody, realize, oh, I guess I have done that a little bit or whatever, and they say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and then God forgives them, and they start becoming righteous, and down the road somewhere, they start looking at other people and say, well, he did that, and she did that, and now I must be okay. I realize I'm okay because they're doing what they shouldn't be doing, and I'm not. Don't ever slip into it. Don't ever drift into it. Always stick with righteousness from God alone. I have a a t-shirt that says, perfect, no, not perfect, just forgiven. And that's where we need to live our lives. If I put that t-shirt on right now over top of my shirt and tie, you'd look at me like, that's a stupid place for that t-shirt. Doesn't look, doesn't make sense with that outfit, right? You would be like, why is he wearing a t, and it's a little holy, like as in it has holes in it. Why is he wearing this t-shirt over his tie? He looks really silly, right? And that's us. Once you've accepted Jesus Christ that way and begged him for mercy, you get his righteousness and then you start living it out. You don't wear that forgiveness of Jesus 
as if it will protect you and you just keep right on doing everything wrong that you want to do. No, you start living for Jesus. The righteousness of the Pharisees was without Jesus, without God, without God's method of salvation, and they were frankly going to hell. And that's not good. We can be going to heaven. All we've got to do is remember where the righteousness come from. We come to the conclusion, but it's, it's a big piece. So I'm, I'm going to ask you, I know we're late into the sermon. Keep your thinking caps on because this, uh, this would stand alone by itself. All right. First of all, they, we must live in such a way. Secondly, the law was meant to be persistent. Third, a greater righteousness is required. We get that by begging God for mercy through Jesus Christ, his son. And then we come to the conclu- conclusion. In order to be these things, and to be recognized as these things, certain things must be true. Okay? You say, well, how do I be a disciple of Jesus? I believe in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. How do I do that? Okay? And I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. Uh, just be aware that they're there, and you can look them up, read them. If you want me to text you the references, I can, but here we go. The first one is a singular loyalty. You want to be a follower of Jesus? Have a singular loyalty. In Luke 14, 26, basically, uh, I'll just sit there and read the actual verse because it's so close. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, was Jesus talking about hating people? Absolutely not, right? We understand Jesus is, is God is a God of love. God is love. So there's no, no hate in him at all. Why did he use such strong rhetoric language? Because some people will not hear it if you don't. Here is the bottom line. Jesus must come first above all. It's going to come at some point in time in your life that your parents are going to want you to do something that God doesn't want you to do. They're going to want you to not do something that God does want you to do. And you have to, in that case, say, I'm sorry, I have to do what God wants me to do. Jesus must come above all. The love of Jesus must make all other love pale in comparison. It is not to hate, but to make all other love pale in comparison. The point of this is to point out how insignificant on a grand and eternal scale love of people is compared to the love of Jesus. Should a man love his wife? Yes, he should love his wife the way Jesus loved the church and gave his life for her. There is no stopping. Should a man love his wife? He should love his wife on the basis of the way Jesus loved the church. He should love his wife more than he loved his kids. He should love his wife more than he loves his job. He should love his wife more than he loves his money. He should step up, stand out, and die if necessary for his wife and do so every single day. But if it comes down to his wife or Jesus, then he goes with Jesus. Oops, sorry, that's for later. Anyway, the bottom line is, Jesus was saying, you must love me more than these. And he pointed to parents, wife, children, brother or sister. But he noticed he threw on something important. And it's the one that most people skip. He said, your life. Unless a man hates his life, Not hates literally, we covered that. But unless a man loves Jesus so much that the love for his life pales by comparison, he cannot be my disciple. So your money, so your time, so your house, so the things you like to do, so your culture, your background, the words you like to use, the questions you like to ask, the things that entertain you, The reality is there are many, many good things in life. But unless you hate them compared to the amount of love you have to Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. 
And so you want to be a follower of Jesus, you need to develop singular loyalty. I would say it this way, if there is anything in your life that is standing in the way, if there is anything in your life that is leading you away from God, if there is anything or anyone in your life that is standing in the way of your relationship with Jesus, you must decide to make Jesus first. This is the great blessing in a marriage. When a man and a woman both make Jesus first, the marriage works. Until then, it doesn't. Unless a man frees his wife to make Jesus first, he shall never have her. And unless a woman frees her husband to make Jesus first, she shall never have him. You have kids? You will never have your kids until you both free yourself to make Jesus first and then secondly, free them to make Jesus first. Every dad in the room is going, I want my kid to do what I tell them to do. Don't. Don't. Because compared to Jesus, you're stupid. That's a reality. You just don't know. There's going to be a moment in time at which a soul is on the line or a life is on the line or your well-being or his well-being or their soul. And you're going to say, son, I want you to do this. And they're going to say, but dad, God wants me to do this. And if they don't do what God wants them to do, you will literally be yanking them off the highway of holiness. Every time you tell your child, your brother, your sister, your friend, this is what I think God wants, always preface it, always put that little subtext in there and say, but you got to figure out what God wants and you got to do what God wants you to do even if it is in contrast to what I want for you. Your parents, your wife, your children, your brother, your sister, and your own life also. Ultimately, you have to be able to say, I would give it all. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, but don't expect too much of me. No. You want to be a disciple of Jesus? Jesus First, be prepared to break every earthly tie. Do you understand that it is impossible that somebody you love, God forbid, it shouldn't be, and if you're stepping up for Jesus, I don't think it will be, but but it could be that somebody you love might not be going to heaven, and Jesus might come again tomorrow, and Jesus might say, say, okay, Brother Ricky, it's time to go. And you might say, but is Amalia going? Because I'm not going. Is that what you're going to do? You're going to go to hell. You're going to choose hell over heaven because you're not sure if somebody else is going to go to heaven? You have to be ready to do what Jesus wants you to do in the blink of an eye. Don't look back. That's the lesson of Lot's wife, right? Don't become so attached to anything in this life that it begins to make the love you have for Jesus somehow pale or be compromised. The second thing then um, is what I call unending devotion. Unending devotion. Jesus said uh, to those Jews who had begun to follow him and believe in what he was saying, we're almost done. He said this, and it's in John 8, for future reference, John 8, 31. Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall shall make you free. That's 32. If you abide in my word, in other words, the things that Jesus taught us, God's word, the things that Jesus taught us, if you abide, that means remain, continue. Don't quit, don't stop, don't bury, don't take a break. There's no halftime show. There's just me. The game begins. The game ends with me following Jesus. I am with Jesus. I am in Jesus. I'm walking in Jesus. I'm continuing Jesus. There's a story about a soldier in a tent. This story is over 100 years old. There's a story about a a soldier in a tent in the army of that day, and at night he would nail down and out loud say his prayers to God as a follower of Jesus. 
And it's, they would turn the lights out and he would kneel down to pray and he would get pelted with all kinds of things like socks and, and toothbrushes and whatever people could find. They'd throw them at him as he was praying, just softly, but praying out loud to Jesus. So he goes to the chaplain in his unit and he says to the chaplain, he says, Should I, what, what am I going to do about this? I can't, I, can't get my, I can't go to my commanding officer and say, hey, they throw stuff at me when I pray. What do I do? And the chaplain said, you know, son, I don't think you have to pray out loud. I don't think you have to pray out loud and kind of bother everybody or whatever. He said, uh, he said so my, my, my suggestion to you is that you pray. Maybe even pray more than you normally would, but just don't pray out loud and bother the people in your tent. So he goes back to the tent and he decides to try that plan. And for one night, he doesn't pray. And nobody threw anything at him. But the whole next day, he just knew that wasn't the right plan. He just knew it wasn't what God wanted him to do. He knew he was welching out on his commitment to God. And so instead... The next night, he got down on his knees. As soon as the lights went out, got down on his knees and prayed out loud again. And they threw stuff at him. And they continued to throw stuff at him every night, every night, every night, until finally the stuff started to be less stuff. Less stuff was thrown. And then still less stuff was thrown. And then finally, uh, only one person was throwing stuff. And by that time, one of the people had joined him in the dark, saying his prayers out loud. And slowly, over a long period of time, everybody, about a little over a year, this is supposedly a true story, everybody in his tent began to pray their prayers out loud. Is it better to be quiet? Is it better to isolate and insulate your heart and say, well, I know what I believe. My, my lion's heart is roaring out for God and I love the Lord and I want my whole life to be like that, but I'm not going to tell anybody about it or stand up or do anything and make myself obviously contentious with the world? Is it better to overlook a minor transgression that you have done rather than to repent again and turn to God? Maintain your course and speed? No, it's not better. It's not better to give small compromises and say, well, I'm going to give up on this one little... I don't really have to do that one little aspect of faithfulness. I know this is what God would have me to do, but I think God wants me to do this over here too. I've got to make a choice. And over here requires more discipline, more effort, more focus on God, more intentionality. Over here is a little easier road, but you know, God doesn't say that sin, so then I can go do that. Instead, no, no. What about doctrinal wavering? Somebody comes in the church and says, well, you know... Um, I know it says that there, but uh, lots of people believe it's okay to do it this way too. And, and so we're going to do it that way instead. That's doctrinal wavering. No compromise. No wavering. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon said it this way. Shouldn't we be flying our colors all the time? Shouldn't we have our flag up? Shouldn't we be letting everybody know which kingdom we are a part of? The next one is what I call brotherly love. Jesus said, By this all men shall know that you are my disciples if you love the love that you have for one another. It's bearing burdens. It's putting up with faults. Here is a trustworthy saying. Not biblical, but trustworthy. If you can't think of a long list of people that you have forgiven because they have bothered you or done something that you didn't like, if you have not gone out of your way to love on somebody who has offended you lately, then probably you are the one offending everyone else. You say, no, no, no there's really nothing wrong with me. I don't like people just going to have to deal with me. This is the way I am. This is the way I was raised. This is the way I am, you know, my culture or my flesh or my whatever. I'm bothered, so I, I, I say and do whatever I say and do. But if you can't think of the people, if you don't have a long list of people that you're forgiving and putting up with their faults, then probably other people are putting up with your faults. 
Disciples are supposed to love one another, bearing each other's burdens. If you go like, I don't have enough money, time, talent, ability, whatever to help anybody, then you are failing as in brotherly love. Begin to work right now to set yourself up in a place where you have excess time, talent, money, resources, strength, whatever, to help others. Because that's brotherly love. And when you do that, when you love in that way, and it might be right now, you can just pray for them. You can pray very intentionally that they have what it is that they need because maybe you don't have any money. You're like, well, I'm working 75 hours a week. I don't have any time. Whatever. All I do is sleep and work. So if that's your situation, then you begin to say, God, I need to love the brothers. I need to love the church, love the people around me. How do I do that? Set me up so that I can do it. Remember, God has the cattle on a thousand hills. God has the money. If, he knew in, if God knew in your heart that your intention was to use that for his glory so they could see who you are, then God will provide the necessary resources to do so. But then when he does, you're not there like a leech, sapping, draining it away, using it for your entertainment, your glory, your fun, too tied to life to really let him be first. No. You say to God in advance, God, you give me resources and I'll bless others. And when God gives you the resources, you bless others. In fact, if I were you, I would bless others even more. Because the more you give, the more he has the opportunity to give. The hardest part of brotherly love is to be happy for other people's successes. The truth is that we literally every person in this room has been hit. Smacked upside the head. Deprived of the thing that would make you feel good. Broken relationships, loved ones died, lost jobs, it's everywhere. We are all hit. Everybody suffers. So and so that we love is sick. We're worried about them. We're concerned about them. Our house is falling apart. I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't, we all have those issues. And then we see other people who don't have those problems. And, we, and what we do is we say, God, well, that's not fair. I don't understand. I'm following you. And I don't understand why I can't have things that other people have. And what God says we're supposed to do is thank God for the blessings that they have. So when someone comes and replaces you in your ministry because they're better at it or they can do it better than you can, you should be going, yay, God found somebody better. Now I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Right? When somebody comes and they, and they got a new vehicle and your vehicle's run down, beaten, jalopy, can't hardly keep it on the road, whatever, and they got a new vehicle, you should be like praising God that they got a new vehicle. But what we're doing is we're failing to be happy for others' successes. Sometimes the only way you can really love somebody is to be happy for their successes and their blessings. And the last one, and we're at the very end of the conclusion, the last one is this. We're supposed to bear fruit. Bear fruit. Jesus said it this way in John 15, verse 8. He said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so, wait for it, prove to be my disciples. Which, if you read it backwards, then means, if you're, you're his disciples, if you prove by bearing much fruit. That's a mathematical equation. And you can find those in Scripture sometimes, and there are not that many of them. Bear fruit. Serve. Service to Christ. For those who have found some way to feel busy or active and who believe they can do something other than the Lord's work as a thing done for, they'll say, with all their hearts for God. So the Scripture says anything you do, do it as if you do it unto the Lord with all your heart. And you say, well, I'm going to do that and it'll be for God, but it's not God's service. It's not working for God. You've compromised. You're doing a disservice and others are watching you. And so based on the scripture that we read today, you will wind up the least in the kingdom of God because you didn't do what it was that God called you to do. You did something that you wanted God to bless. And then we come to the end. 
I have up here, uh, this is a ship's bell. You may or may not know what that is. Um, on the ship's bell, uh, back in the day, they used to use a ship's bell to mark the time. They had an hourglass that was a half an hour long. And every half an hour, the watch commander or the helmsman or whoever was in charge of it would say, turning the glass, ringing the bell. Just like that. They don't have clocks. They don't have watches. But everybody would serve, in, in the English Navy and most navies, they would serve a, a, a four-hour watch. They'd serve a four-hour watch, and, and they would, every half an hour, turn in the glass and ring in the bell. Now the next half an hour, turn in the glass, ring in the bell. Next half an hour, turn in the glass, ring in the bell. Right? Until they would get to eight, at which point in time the watch would change, and then they would do it again. Except in what they call the dog watch, which is where they ate. Actually had their one meal a day. And so that watch was only two hours long. And then the one after it was two hours long, you broke it up. So in the first two hours, you were off and you'd eat. The next two hours, you were on and everybody else would eat. Right? Half and half the crew. They have what used to be called the larboard watch and the starboard watch, and then they invented the term port, because they always parked the boat on the larboard side, which is the port side, and they would say the port watch and the starboard watch. Right? The port watch would eat their two hours worth of meal, and then the starboard watch would eat their two hours worth of meal, and then they'd go back to four hours, four hours, four hours, four hours. And so every day, your four hours were switching. Listen, it's exhausting. They never slept eight hours at a time. They sleep four hours, and then they'd be up working four hours, and they'd sleep four hours, and they'd be up working four hours. But there was somebody on the whole boat, there were certain people who got to sleep at night. You know who they are? Does anybody know? Ron, do you remember? Who sleeps at night and works during the day? No, not usually, actually. He usually took a certain shift. Was the carpenter, the weaver, the sailmaker, all the guys who needed light to do their jobs. So they got eight hours sleep at night. They worked 16 hours during the day. Eight hours sleep at night, 16 hours during the day. Or whenever the sun would go down, they would stop working and they would... And they might do other things, but they were eight hours sleep at night, six hours during the day. We need to be aware of what time it is, whether or not we're on the shift. A lot of people are behaving as if they're day laborers. I want to serve Jesus, but I don't want to do it if it becomes too complicated, too difficult, too messy. We serve Jesus with a singular loyalty, an unending devotion, brotherly love, and bearing fruit. Until, from now until it's too dark to work anymore. That's what it means to be the church. That's what we wanted to build into this church when we set out to plant this church, that we would work until Jesus comes again. I'm asking you to come and work with me. I want to be that person. And the truth is, I'm a human being too. I like to take my times off. I, I, I'm a busy guy and not the greatest administrator. And so I let things slip through the cracks but we can work together as a church to love and live in the light and give glory to God and bear fruit for Him until He comes again. And based on what I'm seeing in the world, we are definitely closer now than we were. In fact, many of the requirements of Scripture that might need to pass before He comes have already passed. And so it could be not that long away. The question is, will you be compromising or will you be digging in and doing being the person that God has made you to be. And I believe our church is a church of people who do not compromise. I believe we serve, we love, we give, we do so with great risk to ourselves because that's how you stand out from the world. 
The difference between the wealthy of the world who are philanthropists and the Christians in the church who give a portion of their income and serve God and spend their time is that the philanthropists are wealthy. And they'll give 5 or 10%, and it might be millions of dollars of their worth to, to good causes. And you and I will never even have millions of dollars. But we still give 10, 20, whatever, however God leads of our sustenance. And they ring the horns in the temple. And we give our two pennies. And God is glorified. Be this kind of church with me. Maybe you're here today and you say, I'm not a follower of Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be. I should be. I know it's, I know God loves me and He's calling me. And I don't even, I didn't know before today that I just like all I got to do is say, okay, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and Jesus will save me. But He will. No more games. No more putting it off. And then once you become a follower of Jesus, no more contempt toward others. Just love, give, and serve. Be the kind of church that Jesus calls great. Not the kind of church that Jesus just calls. I'm going to pray for you very briefly and then we're going to have the praise team come and and we're going to have our closing hymn and the opportunity to respond. I'm asking you today to release it into his hands. This begins, this is the core. This is the core. If you refuse to be that kind of Christian that the Bible calls you to be, then the next two weeks are going to be a little bit less applicable because... We're going to drill down on it a little bit, what the culture of the kingdom is actually like. Father in heaven, we ask your blessings upon this one last song we sing. And as we go out, and as the pantry operates today, and as we serve you, we pray that you will make the things that we are doing stand out against the background. We pray that we will do and love. Maybe that alone will do it. Lord, if they can see that we love them, we can see that we're sacrificing. We can see that we're serving out of a loving heart. Lord, help us to keep you in it. Profess your name. And know for whom we work. And let anyone who will listen know that they can join us in that effort. Because God loved them so much that we already got. We already paid. Father, help us to not hold up our flags, our banners for Jesus. Help us to not hold them up and keep the sword in the trunk of the car or in our house, some closet somewhere. We fly our banners always proudly saying, I am who I am and I know I'm messed up, but I'm, I'm working on being better. I'm working on serving. I'm working on growing, becoming a brighter light for my Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, all that I am is all about my Lord Jesus. Help us put that banner up and keep it up. Help us know what time of day it is. To work. To work together as a team. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we love each other. And be the kind of people that we would have us to be. Let's invite the world and invite all our new friends, all our old friends, all people we work with, all people we go to school to come and take up that banner as well to, to receive forgiveness for past sins and future sins and to give given the righteousness that's available through Jesus. And as Brother Tony Tate said in the inspirational moment, to just let them know there is hope. God help us. We praise you now, but for somebody who might need to be in the room who needs to make a decision where we actually move in their heart and just lift them up. We pray all this in Jesus' name.
Would you, if you're comfortable and able to do so, would you stand where you are and sing with me? And then, if you're responding, you don't sing, you just come. Serve God the way the best way we know how. Is there someone in the room right now that's saying this is really? 